This is Laura London, and you're listening to Speaking of Jung. Joining us today for episode 96 is Jungian analyst and author Marion Dunley in Galway, Ireland. She holds a master's degree in psychoanalytic psychotherapy from Trinity College, Dublin, a diploma in psychosynthesis psychotherapy from the Institute of Psychosynthesis in London, and a diploma in analytical psychology from the International Association for Analytical Psychology. For many years, she studied and worked with the late Jungian analyst Marion Woodman and her team, choreographer and dancer Mary Hamilton, and voice and mask specialist Anne Skinner, on the body-soul rhythms programs, completing their leadership training in 2003. Ms. Dunley is a core faculty member of the Marion Woodman Foundation and is head of training of their sister organization, Body Soul Europe. In addition to her work as a Body Soul Rhythms facilitator, she incorporates the body-oriented approach of Peter Levine as a somatic experiencing trauma therapist and as an infant observation supervisor into her practice as a Jungian analyst. She is the creator of Body Dreaming, which incorporates developments in neuroscience, trauma therapy, and attachment theory with Jungian psychology and the phenomenological standpoint of interconnectedness. Ms. Dunley has been a guest lecturer at the C.G. Jung Institute Zurich, the International School of Analytical Psychology Zurich, and was a presenter at the IAAP's International Congress in Copenhagen in 2013. She is now slated to speak at the Jung Institute's 75th birthday celebration in 2023. Her book, Body Dreaming in the Treatment of Developmental Trauma, was published by Routledge in 2019. It won the Gradiva Award for Best Book from the National Association for the Advancement of Psychoanalysis and was named co-winner of the International Association for Jungian Studies 2020 Best Book Award. It includes a foreword written by Episode 64 guest Dr. Donald Kalshed. Please visit the website speakingofjung.com where you will find links to everything discussed in this episode in the show notes. This interview is being recorded on Wednesday, November 3rd, 2021, through the magic of Zoom. Thank you for joining us here today, Marion. Thank you, Laura. Very excited to be with you. I would like to begin with your background, which is something that's really important for me to establish at the beginning of each interview is there's so much work and so much training that goes into becoming a Jungian analyst. And I like for my guests to share that with the listeners so that they can hear the path that you took because obviously no two paths are alike. So would you tell us kind of the route you took to get where you are? Right. Well, that's definitely a Jungian term comes to mind, circumambulation, because it took me quite a while to um, arrive at the, uh, on the stage in Barcelona to receive my diploma at the uh, International Congress I think it was 2005 it was. Um, 
so, uh, Laura, I began with um, an interest in kind of sort of circumstances led me to be working in hospice. So I began working in bereavement work at the end of life. And at that stage, I had babies of my own. So it was kind of an interesting um, opposites, holding the opposites, uh, the new life and the, then the passing on of life in, and bereavement work was what I was focusing on then. And I stayed in bereavement work while the kids were very little until I had an opportunity for them to be a little bit older and could go to daycare. And then I started to train um, in, at the beginning, it was in revision and uh, psychosynthesis in London. It was called the Institute of Psychosynthesis. And um, that was a very uh, wonderful, exciting and creative time, very opening, a lot of we often talk about the resonators in the body. I would say there was a lot of resonators in the body and the mind and the emotions that were opened at that time. It was also um, at a time in the 80s when they, we were kind of coming out of the 70s and there was still a lot of cathartic work happening. So we would, um, you know, give vent to a lot of feelings and then express things very creatively. And I loved it. It was very expansive for me. And I also had the feeling uh, at the end of my time in London, I was there for about 10 years with my family. And when we came back to Dublin, I had a dream image that I would be in a sort of um, like a, a jacket that tied at the belt and it looked quite formal. Like it was like a coat, sort of like an, an army coat in a way, mm. but it, it had this kind of restrictive feel to it. And I kind of wondered what that image was, but I had started already working with a Jungian analyst in London and I brought this dream to her and it, it, it kind of felt to me like I needed to go down quite a formal route in psychotherapy um, that the exposure to the um, creative side and the soulful side of psychosynthesis was great, but there was something to me that needed to be really pulled in and I needed to go deeper in a kind of a psychoanalytic journey for myself. Mm -hmm. So I trained then in psychoanalytic psychotherapy and did my master's. Um, whilst I had been in London doing psychosynthesis, I used to get the tube up to my course. And in the tube, I was reading Marion Woodman at the time. So I think that there was something in me. I loved, again, her creative, imaginative way and then her deep dropping in to the dreams and the psyche. And I think when I went into Jungian analysis, it was in the hope of finding that. And so my psychoanalytic training was quite different. It didn't bring me into that creative side where Marion's work is found. Mm -hmm. It certainly didn't bring me into the body. But what it gave me, which has really stood to me since then, is infant observation. So you go once a week and you watch a mother with a baby. And that and you're 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 obviously we affect the field we're in, perceiver and perceiver interconnected. So one's presence has an impact, but you're not there to officially guide, you're not there to comment, you're like um, a presence, as it were. But your work is to really observe what's happening in the dynamic and in the relationship that's going on in the room. And uh, it's wonderful then when you come back every week, you've made your notes and you come to a supervision group and there are five other babies with five other observers like myself and our supervisor. 
And I really learned the kind of application of psychoanalysis through that experience. It was very profound. And I think to this day, it has stood, it, it stands to me. Um, and then when I finished my psychoanalytic training, I had a very strong feeling, now I'm going to go to Marion Woodman. Okay. And as it happened, she'd been in Dublin for uh, the launch of Dancing in the Flames, which she co-wrote with Eleanor Dixon. And Marion and her team from Body So Rhythms, Mary Hamilton and Anne Skinner, the three of them came to Dublin and presented a one-day workshop. And I was absolutely on fire with the work and such a sense of arriving to this, I've come home, this is what I want. Mm -hmm. And as it so happened, there was money had come available at that time from my own father, who was giving, granting us all some little gifting of, of money. And there was just enough to get me on my training with Marion at that point. And when I went first, there wasn't an official training, but I would go over regularly to the workshops that were held in California. And that was an expansive time. And coinciding with that, the IAAP offered the Rooter program in Ireland to uh, people who wished to become union analysts but didn't have the institute in place at that time. So you could sign up at the IAAP and the program was then, we, we convened our own programs really and seminars, inviting guests over and you had to do all the hours and the papers that were expected. But I had the real fortune of being with Marion Woodman a few times a year for an intensive at that time. And that was fundamentally my um, work with Jung was a dive with Marion into the body and hearing her teach uh, was just electric for me really at that time. Mm -hmm. It's a very exciting time. And then I got my diploma and um, hence here I am. I just would like to circle back. You mentioned the infant observation work that you did. Where yeah. was that? Where was that? And who was that through? So that was through the, um, I'm just trying to think of the body, uh, like it's the Institute of Psychoanalytic, the School of Psychoanalytic Psychotherapy that's based in Trinity College in Dublin. Okay. And um, so I was working that at that time yeah we were in Dublin and so that's where it happened yeah the infant observation happened then and so you trained with Marion you came to the United States to mm -hmm. do that and and in yeah. California and in Canada yeah some of the listeners might not be familiar with her she uh passed away just a couple of years ago mm -hmm. but she was a big presence with inner city books who first published mm -hmm. her and because i knew daryl sharp the founder and editor at inner city books i became more familiar with her work but her book addiction to perfection was one of the first jungian books i read and it changed mm -hmm. I, I i can honestly say it changed my life it changed everything for me mm -hmm. and, and so what you said your first experience uh, with her book was Dancing in the Flames? That was when I met her first. That was my when first, you met her. Okay. My first book was also Addiction to Perfection uh, on the tube, going to my psychosynthesis course in London. 
And um, I also heard her speak in London in those days. She did a couple of weekends. So before I came back to live in Ireland, I'd been with her in person. And of course, Marion's work is all about embodiment, the incarnation of spirit, really, in our particular bodies. I love that word that Jung uses about the body, the particular body that is mine and the particular body that is yours, that carries your history. And my particular body carries my history and my culture. And um, I loved Marion's connection both to body as that seat of culture and where she came from and her roots and inviting us all to really own our own history and our roots. And then the, um, so this work, I'm not sure really if I'm answering your question, but um, yeah, I, I saw her then when I had the opportunity to go and train with her in California, it was having seen her uh, mm-hmm. at the launch of Dancing in the Flames in mm-hmm. Dublin. And at that stage, I hadn't known she ran these things called intensives, which were um, sort of seven day long uh, intensive workshops. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's when I headed off to one of those. So her work as a Jungian analyst with the body was, mm. I would say it was groundbreaking. I mean, would you, you, no one else had done that up to that point. And so I'd always wanted to ask her, as a Jungian analyst, I mean, the training that she went through certainly didn't include the body. And so. Nor did it encourage it, Nora. Nor did it encourage it. No. She was very, she felt very marginalized, uh, that aspect of her. Um, perspective and her work and her commitment was marginalized in Zurich. In fact, she they were quite antagonistic to her. And she said what she did is she would come back from her analysis and then she would take the space in her room and lay out, you know, space on the floor for herself and do her floor work, as she called it. It was mm-hmm. like bringing the images into her body, working through the emotion and the energy that needed to be expressed. And she had a tape recorder next to her, so she would catch what was coming and record it. But she didn't bring that back into analysis. She knew that she would not, they would not have encouraged it. And in fact, they might ask her or insist that she leave. She was really on a knife edge there with what she was doing. But she was extremely committed to it and um, had great, great faith in in the body as the somatic unconscious with its own wisdom, the wisdom of the body and uh, followed it and really felt that the feminine lives in material, lives in the materia of our own bodies and in nature. And when we pay attention to it, there's an extraordinary flourishing that can happen. It's our guide. It's our guide. I would just like to mention a few of Marion Woodman's books. The first one, which was her thesis at the Jung Institute, because uh, Daryl Sharp, who published it, uh, trained with her at the Jung Institute in Zurich. It is titled The Owl Was a Baker's Daughter, Obesity, Anorexia Nervosa, and the Repressed Feminine. And then the book we mentioned earlier, Addiction to Perfection, the subtitle is The Still Unravished Bride. And she explains why. Also with Inner City Books, she has The Ravaged Bridegroom, Masculinity in Women. 
The Pregnant Virgin, A Process of Psychological Transformation, and Conscious Femininity. At Inner City Books, you can also buy a bundle, which includes three of her books, a deluxe hardcover bundle, and there will be links to all of these books in the show notes, or you can go directly to innercitybooks.net. With that said, we are here today to discuss your book, which too is groundbreaking, I would say. It is titled Body Dreaming in the Treatment of Developmental Trauma. I would like to point out firstly, because there are two big metaphors running alongside here. You use the image of a black pearl for the cover of your book. The image, you say, serves as a fitting metaphor for the practice of body dreaming. So firstly, finding the image for the cover of the book was uh, quite something. I had really been working the book with the image of Newgrange, which we'll come to in a minute. And Newgrange is a particular uh, megalithic site in Ireland. And the image served me really well um, bringing the book together. However, if I were to put a picture of Newgrange on the book, it would be like a tourist book if it was, you know, it wouldn't, didn't, didn't look very right. psychological from my point of view, especially in, in an Irish context. And so uh, a dear colleague of mine, an artist, Dorothy Cross, um, she said, Marion, you've got to have something beautiful for this cover. It's got to be beautiful. And that really resonated again with the book because there's something about this theme of pleasure and coherence and beauty that is throughout, really. And um, we were looking at the Aris Book of Symbols and going through it. And suddenly, we, Dorothy, I think it was hit on, we opened the pearl and she began to read to me the text. And it just seemed most fitting because the pearl is formed from an irritant. It's like a calcium carbonate forms around a piece of sand that gets inside the shell mm -hmm. so it's like something that's an irritant in fact has the capacity then for such transformation and i thought that's it yeah and it also it also happens in the darkness mm -hmm. under the sea of course the sea being the great a great metaphor for the unconscious and for the mother even mm -hmm. but here we are deep in the belly of the ocean this little grain of sand that forms an irritant in the oyster shell, but transforms through the work that happens there. The layering of this knacker is what they call it, that builds up to form the pearl. And um, I felt, wow, that is so profound in terms of the work that we're doing in the body, because the body takes the toll or, you know, what is it that Bessel says? It's like the cost, you know, it's in the body. This pay, the score, what does he call it? I've forgotten the title of... The body uh, keeps the score. Keeps the score, exactly. So Bessel van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score. And so all our life's story, and indeed our transgenerational story from our own particular cultures, is in our DNA, it's in our cells, in our body. And the healing that can happen by attending to the body, in particular to the nervous system, really is what I feel can produce the pearl. 
in particular working with the nervous system to bring that about. Now, when I worked with Marion first, we weren't working with the nervous system per se. We were working with it all the time, but it hadn't been identified. Mm -hmm. It's really with neuroscience that we Mm -hmm. see through the PET scans and the fMRIs, the working of our whole system and the impact that the autonomic nervous system has on our healing, on our immune system, etc. It was so interesting for me to find your work because my background is in neuroscience. I studied it in college and then I went to work. Yeah, I went to work in a neurology department at University Hospitals of Cleveland. And then I worked in nuclear medicine uh, with PET scans. And I left all of that behind uh, when I found Jung and I, that was, I graduated with my undergraduate degree in 1988. So it's quite a while ago. Yeah, that I left that behind and never thought that there was any connection between neuroscience and Jung. And boy, was I wrong. So Mm -hmm. I'm, yes, I'm starting to pick it back up again. And I found out that my professor at John Carroll University, she's still there. She taught me everything. I took her classes in uh, psychoneuropharmacology and I learned so much from her. And so I'm going to contact her. But anyway, so let's, let's talk about the other metaphor and then we can talk about the nervous system. The other metaphor that runs throughout the book is that of Newgrange, which is a megalithic site there in Ireland, where you are in the Boyne Mm -hmm. Valley. Mm -hmm. And tell us why that megalithic site sort of runs throughout your entire book. Mm -hmm. Well, I was in Zurich, I took myself to Zurich to actually write the book, I needed a container that would really um, hold me and that was bigger than me and that had already held the container for so much of Mm -hmm. this kind of work. Mm -hmm. So being in Zurich, I was working with uh, reflecting on the cases that I had Mm -hmm. taken transcripts from and then I was reading and studying and teaching. And whilst I was teaching it, I began to see, I was teaching body dreaming there. Whilst I was teaching it, I was beginning to see that there's this, you know, in mindfulness, we might talk about the pause. Well, in I, I, I had the image one day as I was teaching. This reminds me of Newgrange and the curb stone that's outside the actual cairn. A cairn is called a mound of stones, and but it's built, its architecture reflects the female body the vagina and the fallopian tubes, we could say. And it's a dark passageway that leads into a central chamber. And very often there's beautiful megalithic art. And the side chambers might hold big basins. And again, the megalithic art. But it's the curb stone that really was the first thing that that grasped that I was uh, taken by the image because it's a fabulous curb stone. You could Google it and it's got some of the most exquisite, um, what we call these uh, spirals, the life and death and rebirth, the Triscoll, and it's got the, the dual one. And uh, it's really, really beautiful. And I felt that there's something about that curbstone that stops us on our tracks, that we're outside the curbstone, we're in what we call chronological time, chronos. And when we go crossed this threshold, 
overthrew those spirals, they're bringing us into the passageway, into the tomb, our womb, whatever it is that these cairns represented to these people. So I love the idea of the threshold and the stopping, because what I learned with um, coming into Peter Levine's work and how he supported me to really work with the tension of opposites that we have from Jung is that you hold the tension of opposites. Marion used to say to us, you know, hold the tension, ladies, hold, mm -hmm. hold, mm -hmm. hold, and wait for this new third to come in. And what, what, what happens when you're working with the autonomic nervous system is you're aware that there's been a tremendous activation, we could say, in the system. My sympathetic, my heart rate is going, my blood pressure is up, my breathing is up, and I'm ready for action, or I'm absolutely engaged about something, or I'm highly aroused and worried and uh, activated is the word we often use. On the other hand, we have moments where we can be quiet, where something can hold us in a very different place. And we might call that the parasympathetic. And so when our system is much quieter and there is a sense of the digestive tract can come back online, it's not all about rushing, pushing the blood into action. It's rest and renew, we might say. And when in the body you have these two opposites, when you create these two and by bringing attention to them, something kind of new can come through. So every time there's an activation, for instance, somebody's telling a dream and they're very activated about it, or they come in and they're telling a story, and in telling the story, you can figure, oh, this is a pattern. There's a complex here. This is familiar how they respond to figures of authority or how they respond to their children or to their boss. There's an activation that's present. And so the activation has a, has a, is familiar in the body as a sympathetic nervous system response. And so when we can invite, like at that threshold moment in Newgrange, we don't go straight with the sympathetic, we stop and we wait and we give opportunity to create a parasympathetic moment to match it. And it's not done cognitively, it's done with intention. And I feel this is really, really important. We bring our awareness. We recognize we've been in activation. We recognize there's a complex that's been triggered. And then we invite the person, the patient or the client, to take a moment. And in that moment, we're inviting them to find a parasympathetic that will be equal and opposite. It's like physics. We don't plan it. So it's the unconscious in a way that we're aligning with. We're aligning with the unconscious when we invite the person. We may say, is there something you would like to, you know, that attracts you in, this, in the surroundings right now? Just allow your eyes to go for a wander. And I invite the listeners as we're doing this, just to look around your room and see if your eyes are taken by something, not something you're thinking about. They may have stopped. They may be looking at something all the time while I'm, I'm speaking. And take a moment then to actually bring attention to it. Okay, that's what I've been looking at. And if I hang out there for just a little moment, I begin to notice maybe the leaves and the light on the leaves. I begin to see individual little things, particular things in the image that's in front of me that's caught my attention.
when I linger in that place, I then, as a therapist, say, what do you notice is happening in your body as you're hanging out there? Mm -hmm. And always there would be a parasympathetic response if, the, if the, what has attracted them has been positive, pleasurable. If it hasn't, we invite them to find something else. Inevitably, what Jung says is we are always moving towards wholeness so that there's a self-regulation that is happening in ourselves, in our psyches. And so that pleasure or healing will come in to balance no matter how dreadful the situation will be. There is always a counter movement in the psyche and the body that we can align ourselves to. And for me, that is like the threshold curbstone at Newgrange. And then as I'd spent a little bit of time working on that image, I realized that the entrance to Newgrange is all about this alignment. And it's this passageway that was built to celebrate the winter solstice, because on that day, the sunrise of the winter solstice comes over and the light of the sun travels up that dark, dark passageway, illuminating it. it takes about 10 minutes until it comes into the chamber and lights up the interior. And for me, that really spoke to light in matter. And that our ancient, our ancestors had created this beautiful piece of architecture. And we don't know how else it served them. But there was something about this alignment that was very profound. And our guess is that it gave them great hope that every year the sun would re-enter this and give life again to the earth. That our matter would be renewed by light. This inner marriage, we could say, of light and matter. And I felt that this was a very profound metaphor that could serve the book all the way through. Mm -hmm. Alignment, alignment, alignment that leads us to something really profound in ourselves, which is a deep coherence is the word they like to use nowadays. I think Jung would have, the phrase, the one that Jung used a lot was wholeness, a sense of wholeness when things come together. And so for me, this was the metaphor that I was delighted to work with then in the book and to see those moments of alignment come through again and again and again in working with the opposites, that something very new would be created. And each time it is, it's like a moment of solstice where light and matter are engaged. I'm now wondering about all of the other megalithic sites throughout the world, mm -hmm. right? And was this done, was it in the unconscious? I mean, what, the, what is the purpose of Stonehenge? Of yes. I have a friend, Scott Walter, who's a forensic geologist. He discovered at the um, Newport Tower in Rhode Island mm -hmm. that on the winter solstice, which is his birthday, the sun lights up a keystone. It, it, it's an alignment. And even here in Chicago, in downtown Chicago, the streets and the buildings are situated such that on the equinoxes, the sun mm -hmm. is mm -hmm. in perfect alignment. And they call it Chicago Henge. 
um, because mm, of that. And I'm beautiful. Wonder- yeah, I'm yeah. wondering if, if it's in the unconscious that exactly. we're seeking this alignment and this yeah. light. Yeah. I, I Well, that resonates profoundly for me and my experience. And when I started to be interested in uh, Newgrange first, um, it was an open site. You could just go up and go in. And then they started to, you know, charge you something to go in and they would only leave small groups in at a time. And nowadays, you know, you have to book your ticket to get in and it's only by lottery oh my. Uh, for the solstice. Um, but what I was going to say is the collective unconscious has responded profoundly because here we are in the middle of COVID. You could say the darkest time we could imagine for many of us mm. in the world. And last, uh, the winter solstice last year was broadcast around the world from Newgrange. It was so profoundly moving to see the camera in the dark and l- that light slowly traveling up. 10 minutes it takes before it comes in. And it was an extraordinary moment. I think for so many, I'd love to know how many millions of people actually saw that. And why do we need it? Why do we do it? But it's that hunger we have and it realigns our whole system, Mm -hmm. I find. And that's, I think, what's basic at the moment to the work of embodiment is a system that is aligned that there's fluidity between that parasympathetic and sympathetic, that we're not stuck in fight or flight or freeze, that there's fluidity we can move between and we can hang out more in that place of coherence. So, And when we're in that place in the body, the images that come and how the images drop into the body at that moment is very profound. There's a numin- there's a numinosity about that uh, that I feel is really about an expanded consciousness that people are seeking and are receiving at the moment. Do you think they're going to be broadcasting this year's winter solstice as well? I don't know. I don't know whether it become an annual event or whether it was just motivated by COVID last year and that sense of needing hope, that the world mm-hmm. needed hope. And Ireland can often supply an imaginative um, hope, you know. Okay, well, I'll take a look. And if I find something, I will add a link to it in the show notes. I want to circle back to the image because you. I've heard you say that brain centers respond to image more than anything Mm -hmm. else. So Mm -hmm. using, yeah, using an image is a powerful way in. So would you define for us what you mean by image? Because for people who are visually impaired, how does image work for them? That's a really great question, Laura. Um, So I began to think as you were speaking, and then what came to my mind was somebody that I worked with who was visually impaired. And um, I would also say that this person had a lot of trauma uh, from her early life experience. And um, so to be, for instance, in, one would say, in the body, uh, was going to be very, very difficult for her for many reasons, I would say, just for many reasons, but not least her history. And whilst we worked um, 
in, in she I was both working individually and at that time then I was also working with her in a group. What I would say that was uh, interesting is the the sense that um, that there I think there's an internal seeing of something. I don't know how that's transmitted. I don't mm-hmm. know whether it's the collective as well. So I, I never felt that the visual was in any way, you know, because we're speaking in images all the time. We, we just speak in images. We speak in, in pictures. We speak, our language reflects that. And I, I, and the narrative is very powerful and the narrative creates story. I mean, narrative creates movies, it creates books and all of that. Mm-hmm. So with the, So I feel that the individual is very much in the narrative. But what I wanted to say was a very strong experience for this person began to happen. So being in the body was somewhere that was something that she was uh, in many ways finding extremely difficult to get in. And so making relationship to the body, and this brings me back to infant observation, making relationship to the body is like the mother with the infant. It's like that early attunement. And when I speak to people about body first in this way, it's not something that's they just get. Like some people haven't a clue what you're talking about because mm. body, what's my body? You know, complete association. Most of us think it's a little machine that gets us around the place. And then we're bringing in something relational. And it might be through touch that I touch my own hand and how... What, what's the response in my hand when I touch it? Or the dream, where does it resonate? Is there any shift happening as I look to the dream image that came last night? Or is there something that I'm feeling in my body in response to what I've just heard you say? That's also an image, what you've just said. And I'm having a resonance. So I'm slowly bringing the person in from the outside, as it were, to awaken the cells, what Marion would call is the resonators, you know, awakening the resonators, but with a certain, I could use the word la tendresse, you know, the tenderness of the intimacy between the mother and the infant. I'm really seeing that that's key to how we work with the body. It's not how I come first straight off, but in terms of relationship over time, so this person then began to dream an image. Remember now, she is visually impaired from mm-hmm. your question. But the dream image was that the inside of the body became filled with golden light. Absolutely golden light. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like something had up, opened and received. It was like the receptivity in the body opened to receive light. And she could begin to inhabit and be embodied in the moment and receiving spirit in her matter. It wasn't just that she was receiving heat or a reaction in the body, but there was actually spirit in the matter, in the golden light. It was very, very profound. And in the chapter in the book, I'm not sure what chapter it is now, but um, it's her dream that we work on, her, her last dream of analysis. And that's very visual. It's all visual. It's about an airplane and a crash. And um, yes, it lands on the ground and she comes through and she's able to find her voice as she comes through. So it's like it sums up the whole process. 
um, of her analysis. It's it's very very interesting. So that question is uh, really for me. It's about the visual, but it's about the body, how the body receives at the cellular level. Mm-hmm. It's so interesting to me that because I've been listening to you talk in your work and in your book and that that people are so in general in general are so or I should say people can be so disconnected from their bodies it never it never kind of dawned on me I mean how can you think that you're just in your body and your body is separate from you that's just so bizarre to me I got into Jungian analysis because of body work. I started with having body work sessions and that led me into analysis. So just to hear that also Marion Woodman was not encouraged in her work as a Jungian analyst to work with the body, that that's so strange to me. And so I've heard you mention the Zarathustra seminars, Jung's Zarathustra seminars, is where he discusses the body. So would you say mm-hmm. a little bit about that? Well, um, to talk about the Zarathustra seminars, um, they are seminars that uh, Jung ran in the 30s. So the context there is coming up to the Second World War and the rise of fascism in Europe. So very, very one-sided position and a huge um working of power that was happening in the culture right across the world. And Jung was really inspired, I think, to take um, Nietzsche's text, Thus Spoke Zarathustra, and work with a number of his colleagues at the Psychological Club. And they would meet and work their way through the text. So Jung and his colleagues would reflect on this particular text. Um, and this his whole point really was that Nietzsche's vision for um, this the Superman, in a way, it it was, you know, it was like this, it was a Superman image, but it was, he was saying over and over again, it has, it would fall off the tightrope, you know, a buffoon will knock it off the tightrope unless it's grounded. How do we ground ourselves? Mm-hmm. And we ground ourselves in the body, in the hummus of our earth. And again, you could say in the cycles of nature, but in the actual particular body. And that's a phrase he uses in that book over and over again, that in the particular body, the body that is you. And he talks about the living body, so that the body is so alive and it's not separate to spirit. And that Zarathustra's, you know, the demise, as it were, of Nietzsche himself was because he got caught up so much in the image that he lost the connection with his own body. Mm. And over and over, this became the, this is the theme uh, that Marion saw so clearly weaving its way through those seminars. And when it came to our training, she looked at all of Jung's work and she thought, what? text we want to study and she said this is the text i'm choosing this is the text i'm choosing and it was was a very profound time 
And uh, it, she really charged each one of us with the responsibility that this had the potential to change our lives, that this is a journey that you make when you're making it into the body and when you are holding the opposites in this way and waiting for something very new to come through. And we didn't know what that was going to be. It's very, very powerful. I don't think at the beginning I asked you to explain your word, your term, body dreaming, mm -hmm. what exactly that means, and, and also how the body goes on dreaming the dream. Yeah. Well, the two things are a little bit synonymous for me, body dreaming. So I think what I, I could say, and then Jung's phrase, the dream, you know, the body goes on dreaming the dream. He was talking about if you have an image and you work with the image in analysis, but then you need to work it in a 3D form. So you come out of your analysis, you bring it, which was what Marion was doing, you bring it onto the floor, well, he would say bring it onto the paper or bring it into a piece of clay or express it through dance or movement, that in that way, the energy from the dream continues to move us and transform. It's an active piece. It's not something that becomes static, but it, energy continues to shape and shift us, basically. And um, that was totally my experience working with Marion at those intensives. I got so excited in those first times of realization that we would work on the floor, as we called it, for the afternoon with Mary and Anne doing some fantastic body and voice work. And then I would have a dream at night and I would realize, oh my God, the dream took on and continued exactly the, what I'd been working with on the floor. The energies that had come up for me, what I had seen somebody else do might come up in the dream. The body went on dreaming it, producing the dream. And then the next day that would go back onto the floor in its own form. And so there was this continuity between psyche and matter, body and dreaming all the way through, which was very, very powerful. And um, I, and I feel that for me, I think dreaming is in its state, it's like we're not in control. It happens to us. Um, and when we're working, I was talking about this state of um, working with a state of coherence between activation and deactivation, between sympathetic and parasympathetic in the nervous system. When we're working these two and we're hoping to get to a state of if we like a dance between them where it's not rigid, but there's more fluidity, in that state, there's a kind of a hovering that can happen. And we just wait. And in waiting, there's something happens at a cellular and a muscular level and a tissue level. Things soften and wait. And then there may be an impulse that arises that may be very strong maybe a fist that comes out, and that takes the shape of something that becomes very, very important. Or there may be a movement. I suddenly see the client is talking and the hands are moving in a very different way. And like the mother with the baby, I will mirror that movement. And we'll see if we slow that down. And I'm just mirroring that hand movement now. I'll say, what, what are you noticing? And they may start to describe an emotion that's happening. 
or there may be a bit of a narrative to this hand that's moving in a particular way. And we allow it to shape, as it were, the experience. So we're not shaping, it's the somatic unconscious is leading us and leading us into something that's new. And it's that dance between the unconscious and the image and the body that is so beautiful. Now, I just want to put in there that Peter Levine says trauma is really an incompleted action, that we have an impulse, for instance, to escape or to fight or to hide from a particular threat, let's say, and that that's thwarted in some way and I can't do it. For instance, having anesthesia, you know, I, I, don't, I don't like that needle. I, the body doesn't feel happy come, having that anesthetic coming into the system, but it's stuck in it, so it can't push away. That's a very simple example. But he would say that that pushing gesture will come in in terms of the body, and the client may often be speaking with that, you know, the hand, the open palm is like a push, and it's speaking a lot with the pushing and if you slow that down and mirror it, and we'll say, okay, let's, let's just play with it. It's not like I have an interpretation. I'm going to say, what happens in your body when you went to do that? And it may expand, or it may be into very, something quite fluid, or it may be very focused and sort of like a direct straight line, push. Whatever it is, there's something that has to be completed in that. And again, out of the completion arises the new third, a new possibility will come. There's, a, there's an integration that happens and then very often the new image. And that may not come into the dream that night or it may come in the speaking or reflecting or it may come in a piece of art that's done as a result of the process. So this is quite important to do with a facilitator, this work, one can't do this work alone. We can't see ourselves, right? We can't see ourselves. So it's a bit like the mother and the baby, you know, the baby needs the mother for that sort of, for imprinting what's helpful. As you know, most of us can spend a lot of time in the kind of anxiety uh, circuits and get caught up in it. And we can go at things very intensely. And there's something about the relationship that supports and can support, doesn't necessarily support, but can support the body to begin to trust. It's like so that, you know, when you're holding a baby and it's holding itself and then suddenly the baby, okay, now the baby's dropped its weight into my arms. Now I've got it. Well, it's very similar when you're working like that with a client. You're really, if you were, as it were, you're almost teasing the whole energy field to let go so that it can be present. And sometimes that teasing can come from a place of really supporting the defense. You know, in psychoanalysis, often we see as defenses need to be, you know, they, they, you know, you need to get rid of the defenses in some way, or we need to analyze the defenses out of existence. So we don't need them anymore because now I understand. Whereas in fact, in this way, we really support the body. Whatever defense it's doing, that is what is supporting your survival right now. It's the only thing you know what to do. It's your fight, flight, and freeze. And the autonomic nervous system actually comes into a state of ease when it sees that it's 
actions are powerful and have served the whole survival. And there's a bit more space opens then to be a little bit more questioning or reflective. Well, but actually does it get me what I really need? Every time I go into this complex and I start fighting with people, is that really helpful to be stuck in that? You know? Mm-hmm. Um, and But it's coming from a place of seeing how survival is really absolutely core in our whole being. And we wouldn't have survived if we hadn't had these autonomic uh, nervous system responses and reflexes. As we begin to wrap up, I would like to mention Dr. Donald Kalshed, Jungian analyst and clinical psychologist, wrote the foreword to your book, Body Dreaming. He was our guest in episode 64. And he writes in the foreword that a central conviction of your new theory, because body dreaming is your theory, he says that emotion is the carrier of consciousness. He says your work under the aegis of body dreaming seeks to aid patients in becoming more effectively competent and emotionally literate by growing their capacity to experience and witness strong affect in the body. And he wrote a wonderful foreword uh, that is included in your book. I'd like to mention that there are talks that you did with the IAJS. You did a three-part, I think it was over three days, a seminar Mm -hmm. back in September of 2020 All three of your talks are on YouTube, and I will include links in the show notes for this episode. You also did an episode of Psychosocial Wednesdays, the Trailblazers Hedge School. You did an episode of the Psychoanalysis Podcast, and you did a talk for the Weekend University where you showed slides. So again, there will be links to all of your talks that are on YouTube in the show notes for this episode. And I would also like to mention that on November 13th, you will be presenting a talk for the C.G. Jung Public Lectures Bristol, which will be held online. It is on November 13th from 10.30 a.m. to 12.45 p.m. That is Greenwich Mean Time. Is that correct? That's correct. And on the 18th, I will be speaking at the Jung Club in London. That's also online. Their Thursday lecture series. You will also be teaching body dreaming training. Would you tell us about that? Yeah, I'd love to tell you about it. So um, for many years, I've been working with therapists and analysts all over the world um, with colleagues co-facilitating with me. And people are very curious to learn about body dreaming. So it's a little different to body soul work because it incorporates the trauma work um, and it also incorporates the early attachment work. And I'm going to present a training. We're beginning in December, the weekend of December the 3rd in um, Dublin. And of course, it will be online. So uh, that training is going to happen with a series of modules over a couple of years. And uh, I'm looking forward very much to it. And I also would love to just mention that I'm also, um, I host supervision groups for analysts and therapists. 
as a way of, again, teaching and sharing the work of body dreaming so people can uh, use it and um, feel encouraged to try some of the, uh, the theories and techniques out. Um, so I offer supervision groups. Great. And I will provide links to everything Marion told us about in the show notes for this episode on the website, speakingofyoung.com. So I would like to thank you for all of your time today and for your wonderful body of work uh, for writing this book. It's wonderful. And I'm just delighted to have had the time with you, Laura, for the conversation to evolve. And um, uh, thank you so much for having me. Please visit the website, Speaking of Jung, that's J-U-N-G, Dot com for more information on everything that was discussed in this episode. There you will also find all of the previous episodes of this podcast, which are available to stream or to download for free. Speaking of Jung is also available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, and Amazon Music. And it will be available later in the week on our YouTube channel, Jungian Laura. You can also listen to this podcast on your Amazon Echo device simply by saying, Alexa, play Speaking of Jung on Apple Podcasts. Just be sure to pronounce Jung with a hard J. Links to Amazon's new Echo devices can be found in the show notes. So with special thanks to Routledge Mental Health, Alexis O'Brien, and the Taylor and Francis Group, this is Laura London, and you've been listening to Speaking of Young.